Welcome to the I Love Seville show, guys. My name is Jerry Miller. Thank you kindly for joining us. This program live on every social media platform known to mankind with an audience that I think is surpassed legacy media, certainly in central Virginia. We're looking to talk topics that matter to you, the community, not only around the Charlottesville and central Virginia market, but anywhere. And we are true to ourselves, and we are never seeking approval. We are unabashed with our commentary, and we are unafraid to tackle topics that matter. We do it, however, in a way that is respectful, in a way that allows myself and our director and producer, Judah Wickhauer, at our respective homes to sleep well at night. And we do so every single day. Today's program is one I'm very excited about. Denver Riggleman will join us in about 10 seconds. Former United States Congressman, a man that understands data inside and out, a man that understands the free market inside and out, a man that understands small business inside and out, and a man like us, unafraid, unabashed, and not seeking approval. Judah Wickhauer is our director. If we can welcome Denver Riggleman to the show with 11 states on the program, Denver, you're live. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing, bud? We're doing absolutely fantastic. The show is yours. Um, give us a snapshot and update on what is going on with you. Ah, you know, life of uh, life of crazy. Well, you know, we have both distilleries now in Virginia and the Poconos in Pennsylvania. So still fighting some regulatory issues. You know, I don't like overtaxation and overregulation, as a lot of people know about me. Still fighting there, but we're expanding our inventory and with a wife and daughter that are, you know, the only, I think, mother-daughter master distillers in the country, it's sort of cool that I just get to be sort of the arm candy for my wife, you know, walking around. You know, just the pretty face of Silverback Distillery. So I uh, also started a new company uh, looking at AI, but actually looking at large language models as just a portion of an ingest to do open source intelligence analysis and all that kind of stuff. So I started another company, Jerry, so that's my fourth. The first two did pretty well. The third was Silverback. And now on the fourth, I'm, you know, rocking and rolling on this now, too. Um, as you know, I was a senior uh, technical advisor uh, for the January 6th committee. I have a pretty high-end client now that a lot of people know about, which I can't talk too much about. I can, in broad strokes, but I can definitely talk about things that we've seen in data, and that's Hunter Biden. Um, and, I, you know, when you talked about data as the battlefield, I can talk about why that is actually, I think, one of the most important sayings of today. Um this weekend, uh, spent time with my granddaughters, so I, don't, I know it's hard to believe with my incredible good looks and dashing charisma that I'm a grandfather, but, um, you know, I got that going on, and, uh, you know, got another book, I think, coming out, because, you know, I just did the New York Times bestseller, believe it or not, The Breach. My book, Bigfoot, It's Complicated, is being shopped for a movie right now. I, that's why I've been going back and forth to L.A., so it's been, uh, it's been pretty insanely busy, and other than that... I still occasionally like to just be with my dogs, drink a bourbon on the porch, and watch the river. You, there you go. How's that for three minutes of bio? <laughs> you and I have quite a bit in common. Serial entrepreneurs, um, guys that certainly often speak out about the reach of government when it comes to taxation with our businesses, running a handful myself, and the taxation piece just absolutely demoralizes me and inspires me to get involved civically. Um, I want to focus on you here. We talked about data defining the battlefield. I have too much respect for you to push on the Hunter Biden um, storyline. So I will throw that open-ended, follow your lead, data defining the battlefield. Show is yours, sir. Yeah, well, thank you, man. No, I'm... Um you know, I was Air Force Intelligence, uh, did a lot of counterterrorism stuff, uh, but I also worked in the National Security Agency, you know, as a uniform wearer and as a contractor, did a lot of stuff with the Office of Secretary of Defense, and, you know, and our company also supported some special operations stuff around the world in the signals intelligence area. So my whole life was sort of defined by tech, even though my background at UVA was Eastern Europe, right, the former Yugoslavia. Um, so it was pretty interesting when I was enlisted before I became an officer, you know, I was taught radars, communications, um, avionics, uh, and guidance and control. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Cause you know, I had a 1.1 GPA in community college. So I thought, wow, you know, I'm barely smart enough to work on jets, but I went to school full time. That's how I got to UVA. But it's weird when I became an intelligence officer with that degree and with that technical background, they allowed me opportunities. I don't think a lot of people had, and that was combining 
tactical data like aircraft and people on the ground with satellite data. And I got to combine that to go after terrorists. And so I was able to merge data based on my special clearances that other people couldn't to go get bad guys and bad pieces of equipment or bad organizations. So when I say that data is the battlefield, I think when I came into the game, you know, you're talking about 1998 when I graduated from UVA, and then 1999, I think I got a tech school for intelligence for the Air Force out of Goodfellow. You saw this bloom in data. Like um, my business partner tracked Al-Qaeda senior leadership, right? And so that's what we did was how do you track people using data or how do you look at the communications using data? How do you look at the world? So that's how I was raised, man, you know, and I think that's what I've done it for so long now. You're talking about over two decades just in that business, then being in Congress and then going back into it with the J6 committee that I become very literal on what you can and can't prove. You always have facts-based insights or analysis or you make assumptions or courses of action, but you do, do use the baseline to see what does the battle space look like. And the best example I have very quickly is that if you're going after people that are, say, spreading disinformation, you don't let them know that you're tracking them for a year or two while they're actually um, using data and putting it out there and then saying things uh, that really contradicts what they're saying before because grifters got to make money, right? So I, I have just, you know, I just got lucky to be trained that way, bud. And, um, you know, I was able to see that in January 6th with the command and control infrastructure. I'm able to see it on my latest tax uh, task with the Hunter Biden's legal team. It's just really quite simple and boring. Um, the exciting part about it is we're going against fantasy sometimes. We're going against people who might be misrepresenting things. But usually when everything's said and done, I have to make the data more exciting for people so they pay attention. You know, it's like trying to make data into Jason Bourne. It's like, you know, trying to make me into LeBron James. It's very difficult. So that's, that's where we're at, man. That's When I say data is the battlefield, is that you can actually base that past performance of data on what you're looking at the future and then look at the gaps to see where you have to go in order to identify bad actors or people that are doing things that are untoward. Misinformation has been a topic um, that has entered the news cycle as social media becomes even more approachable and ubiquitous. I was reading this morning um, Meta's new app called Threads has now reached 100 million users and we're talking in a week's time here, not even a week's time. Can you explain how you've seen um, social media, smartphones, and how they've essentially empowered just about anyone to potentially spread misinformation and how this misinformation spread can go viral so quickly that it could potentially change a narrative, a personal brand? And then the second part is, how does someone even try to combat this? I mean, when something goes viral, as you've seen on Twitter, I mean, for example, I've included you on, I don't know, 12 or 13 apps that you were coming on the program. I'm sure your phone was getting notification, notification, notification. Oh, it was lighting up. Lighten up. up. So we use it for the good here. But someone like me, who's got a quarter million followers in Central Virginia, four million plus followers anytime he wants is undoubtedly in a position of influence and power here. So all those topics to you, how you've seen it for the good, how you've seen it for the bad, and how someone in your shoes can help combat that misinformation spread. Man, that's, that's a great question and great lead. And the first thing I think you're talking about is digital metastasization, right? The fact is that a lot of people are looking at their smartphones and their sources as almost things to follow or to emulate Right, without really looking deep, deeper into what's going on. I mean, people sh- probably shouldn't be making decisions off of a meme, right? Or, you know, or people that in the past maybe have said things or done things that are so ridiculous and conspiratorial. You know, for me, like if something comes out from the Gateway Pundit, right, that's a, that source is so dirty, you know, you wouldn't use that. Or if something comes out, you know, some from far left stuff that hit me, you know, because I've actually had to go through this, as you know, whether it was you know, officiating the same-sex wedding and getting hit by QAnon or people accusing me of Bigfoot erotica, I got it from the left and the right, and it's because they want to win elections. That's it, right? It's it's just based they want to win elections. So you have this ability, if you have the right people in the social media circles, to spread this. And you know how I fight. I fight it with humor, and, you know, it's sort of come at me, bro, right, if you want to do this, because I have a baseline of facts-based things that I can rely on And if I tell somebody that I did or did not do something, they can usually take it to the bank because 
it would hard for me to be it would be hard for me to disprove that I'm a writer of erotica or that somehow I'm peddling kids in the basement of Congress, right? I mean, those are those are things that you really you know that people could just put out there, and they're so full of crap. But I think we're in this sort of I think we're now in this conspiratorial sort of bloom of things that are happening right now. And there's a responsibility if you're a public servant, if you're in media, to source correctly and also even to present things that seem questionable where you're right on the edge, to present it with enough to where you say, listen, this seems this way, but we don't have 100% yet. So we're going to continue our reporting and we'll real-time correct based on whatever information, our facts-based things that we get, whether it's data, whether it's testimony, whether people self-identify. You know, you said something about your followers, right? Um, and how you've grown, right? And you bloomed your presence on media and you're not on ABC or CBS, but my goodness, you probably have bigger ratings or more people listening to a late night CNN program, right? You have more people and that is alternate media. And I think social media and alter media not only can do good, but I think it's also where the information war is taking place. And I do believe the information war is the new forever war. And I think if you're a person who wants to use it for nefarious means, if you're a serial grifter, right, you're a sociopath, or you're just completely stupid and you seem to be able to tap into the other, you know, lizard parts of people's brains and you can monetize that, I think we always have to fight back against that. But there is no cure for it. I think it's a constant fight between those who are responsible and those who are not. Um, Denver Riggleman, guys, our guest. What's the role of the social media platform? And these companies? Yeah, I mean, one of the hardest questions to answer when it comes to the First Amendment, uh, when it comes to what does regulation look like? You know, I, I, as me starting a company that has roots in artificial intelligence, I went to a meeting of 40 people in D.C. and 39 of them wanted to regulate it immediately. And my one question was, how? And then, of course, you get some bumbling and stumbling around with the biggest minds because... When people build things like I do, you know, it's very difficult to regulate. I was in Congress, Jerry. I know how hard it is to regulate to get, you know, um, legislation through the wickets, even if it's good legislation. Legislation. So I think the social media platforms, they have to come to a point where they got to make a decision on what does sourcing look like, what does disinformation look like. If it's a free-for-all, First Amendment free-for-all, where anything stupid can be out there, we need to realize that we have to use our First Amendment ability to fight back with everything we have. But again, I've said this before, and I'm not trying to be funny or glib, but uh, I think crazy has a lot more energy than sanity. And I think it's really difficult for the sane not to get exhausted and pushing back because lies hit you so much more in the sweet spot of your movie that you're playing in your head about how awesome you are or whatever confirmation bias that you have that um, it's the truth is really hard to actually sort of smash through because it's a lot easier to believe sometimes to some people there's a deep state conspiracy, right, where it's somehow is coming from, you know, black helicopters flown by the UN. That sounds really exciting, like, you know, enemy of the state. But in reality, life is much more boring, complex, and incompetent than, than overarching, you know, conspiracy theories. So, and that's the sad thing, right, is I've come to a conclusion of being in the military, uh, serving in Congress, being a CEO, being a dad, being a family guy, that life is much more mundane. And I think a lot of people want to p- pick the exciting apocalyptic things of good against evil when really life is about just doing the best for your fellow human beings and trying to live in a way that's responsible. And even if people come at you knowing you're you you know you're saying the truth, you're, you're using as many facts as you can, and you're just not being a, a flaming asshole. We- you know, and I think that should be probably... Our motto. I love it. I absolutely love it. That is a great motto. we got a handful of newspapers watching the program, a handful of TV stations watching the program. Um, I've been following Tucker Carlson's show on Twitter, and Tucker mm-hmm. Carlson, a content creator, gets fired from Fox News, and then he resurfaces on Twitter with his own program that he's shooting from one of his homes. It's considerably less um, costly from a budget or production standpoint. He's doing this on a shoestring budget, a one-shot camera on him. The lighting is terrible, but the performance and the KPIs, the viewership, the reach of what he's doing on Twitter is undoubtedly like three, four, five, six, seven Xing what he was getting on Fox News here. So I guess this is the question I have for you. 
you got platforms anywhere and everywhere where folks like you and I, folks like Tucker, folks like AOC, folks like Trump can get on with a one shot and a camera and talk into a video onto their phone and put it on social media and have a reach that is legitimately larger than they can get on network television in prime time. The question I have for you is, the market is clearly heading in this direction and perhaps in directions we don't even know. Does this make you scared? Does this scare the shit out of you? Is this just the nature of being in a free market where we can say, in our, say what we want on our mind and do what we want from a uh, personal expression standpoint? What's the perspective you offer the thousands of people watching us right now? <laughs> well, I think people are going to get their drugs where they can get their drugs. So, I mean, so if they, you right, so if they want to feel good about whatever, you know, whatever fantasy or whatever they're actually believing that day, they're going to go to the echo chamber that most suits them. You, I mean, a great question at the end there, Jerry, is like, where do you think we're going, right? Or what's the, what is my real opinion on it? I, I would say, if, if somebody asked me that 15 years ago, I'd say, you know, this is pretty neat. You know, the fact that everybody has a voice, right? That's pretty neat. Um, but what you find, um, even as somebody who, listen, stupid is not illegal, right? But there's an amazing power to stupid people in large groups. And I think we're seeing that in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before. Uh, and I think that people who believe some of the things that Tucker's put out there, I mean, I watched Patriot Purge. I paid for that trash, right? And I just laughed. I mean, there's... You know, the same tropes and memes of conspiracy theories came up. Black, black helicopters, deep state, false flags. The same old, same old from really the laziest conspiracy theorists. Um, but I think on the other hand, I've always sort of been against, like, I've been against deplatforming. Um, it's just something for me that might be a little different than what other people think. Because if you deplatform too many people, yes, it takes away you know, from their immediate sort of message that they're putting out there that could be absolutely false. But on the other hand, they might go to other platforms and there's so many choices now that people might follow them. And now we're back to Tucker Carlson and Twitter, right? Now, so I just sort of brought it full circle. And I believe that as much as, I, I do think there's a time for deplatforming if you're a private company and you think that they're actually pushing things out there that could cause violence. If we go back to January 6th. But I think we have to be very careful about that. I think it's exciting on one hand, but on the other hand, I think we're having a problem with having a truth-based society, and there has been a bloom in conspiratorial mindsets. Tens of millions of people, you know, believe that January 6th was a false flag. I mean, it's ludicrous. And so there's no data to support it. There's no facts-based insights to support it. There's no depositions to support it. There's no interviews that support it. It's just smoke, conspiratorial smoke. That's what scares me. So I'm at, the question back to you is rhetorical because I don't know the answer exactly, but we don't want to suppress the First Amendment, but we got grifter jack wagons out there that are pushing bullshit to monetize or weaponize conspiracy theories. So that's that's always the fight that you have if you're a free-minded person. That's sort of me. I took a I took a survey the other day, Jerry, and they're like, "What are you, left or right?" And it came up with ambivalent right, and I started laughing so hard, like they nailed it. I'm ambivalent right, right? More, you know, because I just want to know what the truth is. And again, we, we were talking about overregulation. I don't want to overregulate businesses, but again, we have this freaking just diarrhea of digital crap that is just being injected into people right in their frontal lobes. And I think that's something that we have to fight um, in a fact-based world. You have to fight back against that, and you got to fight back against this automatic knee-jerk reaction that somehow there's deep compartments in the government that are always in some kind of weird, secretive you know, posture against the American public. Riggleman is on fire right now. Denver Riggleman, guys, our guest. We can take some questions, and I see them coming in. I have a few myself. We'll talk Ukraine, Russia here. We'll talk the J6 sure. committee here. Um, we'll talk just free market here in a matter of moments. Um, first, Elon Musk. Um, Musk takes Twitter private. Um, I've said often on this program that Musk is playing chess when a lot of us are playing checkers. Um, folks point to Twitter and how Twitter is maybe losing this battle to threads, Meta's new Twitter uh, that was released last week. And I said, folks, Musk, his play is his other businesses. For example, Tesla's got a market cap last week of $830 billion. And this company with a market cap of $830 billion has literally spent $0 in totality on advertising and marketing. 
Zero dollars. What he does on advertising and marketing is his interaction on Twitter, and now he owns the platform. So here's the question I have for you. Is, is this serial entrepreneur, Elon Musk, much like you and I, but a very different level here, is he playing the Twitter game to make a company profitable and to reinvent it, or is he playing the Twitter game to scrape, store, and scrutinize data for the betterment of his other brands and his, and his ambitions? First of all, great. It's all about the data. That's number one. Number two, Twitter is a pimp. My grandfather had an incredible saying, and I hope people don't take this too bad, but you know, he would say, you know what, man, in the grand scheme of things, you're just a pimple on a hog's ass, right? So I think Twitter to Elon Musk is just a pimple on a hog's ass if you talk about Tesla and SpaceX and his other ventures. It's a massive data machine. The other thing, too, is what, the way that he's interacting right now is really troublesome. I, I don't think he's like us at all. Um, I think he's somebody who maybe has gotten drunk on his own bathwater of some bizarre, almost some some far right stuff. It's not even far right. It's just conspiratorial junk. So I don't think he's like us at all, Jerry. I would actually say that that in some ways he's very dangerous based on his reach. Um, the fact that financially, I mean, you think about it, Jerry. I mean, I do okay. You do. We do okay, right? I'm looking at the woods here. It's beautiful. I got some dogs. I got a big deck. Uh, you know, I got a river. Deck, D-E-C-K. We're not talking about Elon Musk right now. So, um, and his Zuck thing. But I got this, you know, this incredible thing out here that's going on. And um, we would be crushed by the type of legal or just the type of weight that he could put on individuals based on his wealth. I think there needs to be a responsibility there because the stuff that he puts out there is so infantile and juvenile. It makes me wonder how he was such a mastermind or how he had the ability to be such an effective, you know, sort of, I would say an amazing entrepreneur, right? If you talk about Tesla and SpaceX, my Lord, right? I mean, it that takes incredible vision. But what he's presenting to the public right now is so damaging to him as a human being. I don't think any money can take up with just putting stuff out that's, you know, sort of suitable for 12-year-olds or actually sort of feeds into the worst of, of our weird thoughts that really aren't facts-based. And it's amazing that a guy with that technical background would put out such tripe. And I think that's what's so damaging. I don't think he's like us at all. Um, and I think that's... That's why I'm pushing back so hard, right, on things that are just untrue and why you have to go back to, to truth as a baseline. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm going to throw this to you. He, We're talking Musk, and this is a segue into something that you've experienced a couple weeks ago. And here's the ironic thing is what we're talking about right now in this talk show is literally airing on Twitter, a platform that Musk owns. So Musk, Musk mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago puts out a, a, a distasteful, nasty, gross meme um, about um, transgender. Um, and anyone can Google it on their own, and they can find it if they like. Um, where I'm going with this is you, um, with a, the officiating of a same-sex marriage, um, caught a lot of flack from the local GOP. Um, and we stood behind you on this show, and... We, yes, you did. we would have done um, what you did um, because the folks that you were marrying meant something to you personally um, and they had shown kindness and loyalty to you and you wanted to show kindness and loyalty and love back and when it's all said and done, you're an open-minded guy. This is what I'd like to throw to you. Um, what did you learn from this process what did you learn from the local GOP in the 5th? I've said this so many times. The representative that we have in the 5th District right now, Bob Good, ain't so good. He, his rhetoric scares the bejeebus out of me, especially as a father. Um, I think this guy has got a, a market share in this very um, red and gerrymandered district that it's going to be difficult for him to beat. Uh, we saw that with Thronberg, Josh, getting hammered in the past election. It won't even close. Um, your thoughts, uh, it's a two-part question. What you learned um, officiating that same-sex marriage from the local GOP, and then how do you possibly shift the tides in this district to someone that I would say is more uh, 
indicative of where I'd like the district to go as a father of two boys who have to grow up within the district? Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about the left and the right, Jerry. I think we need to talk about fantasy and facts. Um, I think just having a, a facts-based human being who's representing um, a district is probably the most important thing. Um, the, the issue is is that he represented it. You know, I didn't really have much of an election. It was 2,500 people at a church. Um, I didn't get a chance to – nobody wants to fight me on that battlefield anyway. You know, not, not, on a, not on a fair place, but politics isn't fair. And what I learned pretty quickly, that it's easy to manipulate the system, to disenfranchise people, right, uh, and to make it where you want the person you want. And, and about Bob Good, listen, let's be honest. I'm, uh, I mean, he's happy to be owned. You know, he's owned by the committees. He's happy to listen to him on how he votes. He's never had an independent thought. I think that's something that's that's very valuable to him in the 5th District right now on the GOP side is that he's he's a robot for the committees. And I just refuse to be that. So what did I learn? I wasn't very good at following orders from anybody, right? And I also learned, too, that I'm still on the right. And I think people know that. I think that nobody's like Denver's a liberal Democrat. If they are, right, they're, they're smoking some kind of wacky weed because that's not true at all. By the way, I'm for the legalization of marijuana, as you Me know. Me, too. So Me, anyway, too. Yeah, absolutely. So the marriage equality thing. I said that beforehand. What I found, I was like, well, Denver, you know, you didn't, you weren't totally truthful about what you were going to do. Yeah, it was from the beginning. And people can go back and say I was for marriage equality, right? But the thing is, I love these two guys. And if there's anybody out there who knows me as a friend and we're in a bar fight, I'm the first one by your shoulder. I don't care who you love, right? As long as you're honest and good and forthright and you're good to me, I'm good to you. And I don't care if you're gay. Why would I care? Why would I give a rat's ass how you actually identify? I, I, why would I do that? Even if you're Christian, even if you're religious, that's not your bag. Um, and the other thing, too, it depends. I had somebody said, well, Denver, you know, how about religion? I don't care if you worship a head of lettuce. I, I just don't care as long as you treat people with respect. As long as you're a good person, I'm going to like you, and I will be there for you no matter what. And that's the one thing that I think as a human being is – I've lost sleep over losing that election because I'm like, what if I just acted a little crazier? Would we have somebody like Bob Good in, right? Maybe. Maybe if I kowtowed to a committee. But what I found is I'm not really good in the legislative space. I'm more of an executive. I was a CEO. So if I were to run into something again, it would not be in the legislative space. you know. And, and I appreciate the HD55 push, Jerry, but I think that uh, – thanks a lot. Boy, that caused me some pain. <laughs> but I think that – I appreciate that. But I think that, you know, I, if I ran for anything, it'd be an executive branch position because um, I just I just did not play well, you know, with uh, lobbyists, committee members, um, the conference, and everybody telling you what to do as somebody who was almost 50 years old and never been in politics, served my country, was a successful CEO. And I'm listening to some 30-year-old jack wagon who's raising money by saying the world's coming to the end because the globalists are shooting space lasers. And I got to deal with that kind of crap when I actually went after terrorists and I'm a decorated veteran, right? Give me a break. And so sorry, guys, if um, I just I just can't spoon with stupid and I'm not going to do it. And um, it's just it's a, maybe it's a character flaw that I can't kowtow to everything. I tried. I tried to play the game. I tried to, to swim in that stream. But what came down to is I had to be able to sleep at night. And uh, that's it. That's the whole that's the whole shebang, and that's it. I don't have anything else on that. I had to be able to sleep at night. Um, he mentions HD 55. That was the lawfare Kellen Squire battle that just got nasty, and we, we said we would put the entire weight pro bono of this network behind this man <laughs> because I'll tell you what. That, that our politics align here. Look, what do, you, what do you call this person here, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know some of my feelings here. I don't care what someone smokes. I don't care who marries who. I don't care who falls in love with who. Um, I don't care what you do in your bedroom. I don't care what you're watching on the screen. As long as what you're watching on the screen involves adults that are 18 and over. I champion women's reproductive rights. A woman has the right to do whatever she wants with her body. Okay? For, for someone to say that a woman doesn't have a right to do with her body, I find that crazy, especially after watching two nine-pound bowling balls come out of my wife's vagina. She's got the, the, the power and the, and the strength that I never in my wildest dreams could possibly possess. She is a superhero, and if I was in that position, I would have folded like a chair. I'm a, I'm a guy that believes in small government. 
I'm a small business over, owner many times over. I've exited businesses. I own four right now, and I don't want the government in my business telling me what I can do, and, and, and the taxes that I can pay are obscenely, obscenely uh, a drag on the growth of the business where I could potentially hire more people and drive GDP locally if I didn't have that kind of exposure, okay? Amen. I, I see that as someone not as a Republican, not even as a Libertarian, not as a Democrat, just the party of common sense. How do you see someone like yeah, that? I, I, I see them as an American oh, friend. I love that. And, right, and um, I think, uh, you know, the, the one thing that I've evolved on, you talked about all that, was, you know, I did get hit because of my abortion views, too, because I believed in um, exceptions and I wasn't sufficiently pro-life. I've even evolved on that. I think I'm more aligned with you now on that, too, and it's based on my wife and daughters and also what people understand about me, man, is that I believe that, that people are a person at a certain point. I think it's science-based. That's why, you know, after a certain point, I think abortion is very heinous. Um, but on the other hand, also women and a doctor and their family should be making that decision too. So it's nuanced for me. It's not a, it's not a black and white issue. And I think that's the thing that we're having here is we're so beyond nuance or trying to understand other people's point of views or when, really extreme far right or far left comes in and crashes right which sort of drives this we got to make the decision between that or that i'm not going to do that i don't have to i'm a goddamn red-blooded american i'm going to say what i think i'm going to do what i want to do i can feel what i feel so i think what you just defined is you define an american and if people have a problem with that i just don't care i i, I and uh you know, it, it maybe that's why, again, I don't have to have the love and adulation of mouth breathers in order to actually live a day in my life. I just don't need it. And um, if it makes me a little unique that way, you know, somebody who's self-made, um, it, it does give me a bit of a chip on my shoulder, I think, when it comes to, uh, to uh, listening to other people or listening to large groups. I automatically sort of shy away from if a large group is in consensus about me personally. I'm like, eh, well, you know what? Then we're going to fight. I mean, that's just, that's just what it is. <laughs> that's just how I'm wired, man. Well, it's on, you know. And if I lose, I lose. But at least, I, you know, at least I broke the right bottle and there's chairs upended and, you know, the, fa- the, the ceiling fans broke. But, yeah, I know. That's, that's really my goal. Uh, Denver Riggleman might be breaking the Internet right now. Twelve states watching the former congressman on the show and a number of media outlets. Um, J6 committee. Um, Anywhere you want to go on J6 committee, I'm shocked by folks that literally comment on our shows that literally say that this never happened. I continue to get this on a many times a week basis. It literally filled my inbox, my DMs, when we promoted that you were coming on the show here. Um, I'll go open edit on the J6 committee anywhere you want to go on this. Yeah, well, they can read the book. <laughs> and, you know, the, the other thing, too, you know, is that, uh, I mean, it just, it's a, it was a terrorism investigation. That's it, you know, and looking at command and control, and I could just see it all, you know, we had uh, over 30 million lines of data. I mean, we had one of the, the Proud Boys had 25,000 pages of phone records in three months, you know, and. We were able to do things that I don't think anybody has ever done with open source intelligence and publicly available information. So I'm just really proud of that. But January 6th was, um, you know, it's just a, a bunch of coup-like behavior from some smart, not some not so smart. And fortunately, you had enough of the mentally challenged that we could actually identify those people, that low-hanging fruit, and get to the others and, and see what was going on. So that's it. I mean, January 6th happened. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people do want to forget I do think there's people who believe that maybe it didn't happen or it goes against their natural instincts, that there's no way this could happen in America or it was a deep state coup or a false flag or the FBI was there, the CIA was there, or aliens had somehow gotten into the crowd or there's reptilian humanoids. I don't freaking know all the conspiracy theories. I know a lot. Um, yeah, I, I'm just, I just saw what I saw. I saw the data. I saw the facts-based stuff. I saw all the depositions. I saw the charging documents. We did all the analysis on it. It is what it is. If you reject it, I, I just can't help you at this point. But what I hope is that we see that that can never happen again, you know, at the United States Capitol. And again, it's our job as free-thinking, facts-based individuals to make sure it doesn't. 
I have on our comment aggregator hundreds of comments coming in. We're going to cherry pick a couple of them. I have a couple more for Denver. Um, Trump sinking another run for the White House, man. Um, oh, man. Um, scares the bejeebus out of me. Um, we know that this man has put himself first before the country already a number of times. Um, I think we're seeing it yet again. I know we're seeing it yet again. Trump making this push for the White House terrifies you, scares you. Is It's America. What's your stance on this? Doesn't surprise me. Uh, um, I said this right out. You heard me on the floor of Congress. You heard me afterwards. I mean, I still think Trump is the presumptive nominee. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's impossible. You hear the far left or the left or independents or center right saying he can't win again. And I'm like, God, where did we hear that before, right? 2015, 2016. And I just sort of, you know, and it's not like, you know, it's not like President Biden is lighting up the favorability, you know, when it comes to polling. Um, and people are like, oh, we don't believe in polls. Well, you know. You might want to at least use that as a guideline to maybe people aren't as happy as you might think they are in your world too, right? So again, I think people get in their echo chambers and their compartments and they can't see it for what it is. Just look at what's happening. If you look at DeSantis, DeSantis is maybe running one of the most inept campaigns I've ever seen. I, I just don't even know. I don't actually know if he knows where he's at, if, if he's also has some issues with trying to gauge what the battle space looks like. You know, the person that um, has really surprised me coming out of the gate is Chris Christie. Um, it, it did surprise me in a good way. Um, but I think when you look at, if you if you ask them directly, like you ask Asa Hutchinson, some of the other individuals like that, would you still support Trump? They say yes, they would vote for him or support the nominee. I think that, again, that should give people pause. Like, hold on a second. They say they're more moderate, but they're still going to go down the Trump line if they do. So, you know, I wouldn't vote for Trump, obviously. But I do think, again, he, he, does, he does attract people who believe in some, you know, in, in this good against evil, white, black, apocalyptic sort of messianic thing going on in the United States. And that's very attractive to some people. And that's why I tell people, if you just look at what's going on, look at fact-based, look at data, look at fact-based insights, Trump's doing very well right now um, at, at, to be the nominee. And, and I think it would take some kind of health issue or something else. I mean, he is, what, 77 years old? He's not quite all there either, if you've noticed lately. Um, I think he's actually going down sort of that senility line himself. So I think people might start seeing that. But again, I don't know if that stops it. Um, I just think right now, you know, people are laying money down. They're laying money on Trump being the GOP nominee. And um, I, I do think you'll see a push, a little push by Pence. I think people will be surprised by it, but I don't think it'll hit. I don't think you're going to see a really big push by Christie. Um, and I think people are running for VP right now, man. I think that's what they're doing. Um, two more from me. Um, Ukraine, Russia. What, you're as connected as, as, as anyone here. Um, mm -hmm. when, 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 the, when the war was in the top of the first inning, the speculation was a month Ukraine folds under Russia's influence, wealth, and, and, and military. We're a long time into this. This has geopolitical influences. This has influences on stock markets um, across every country. Um, and when, it all, when it's all said and done, this has an influence um, or an impact on freedom, freedom of a country. Mm -hmm. um, I think about it, if this was, was to ever happen to the United States, what would be the world's reaction? Not that this could, maybe it could happen to the United States. Ukraine, Russia, and whether or not closure is imminent and the collateral damage of a war lasting this long. Yeah, I mean, what are we at? The 500-day mark was yesterday or today, I believe, Jerry. Um, and I think um, um, Zelensky went to Snake Island. We're really at uh, really a symbol, you know, the Ukrainians getting killed after saying, you know, screw off, right? Uh, I think uh, for me... Absolutely, in Ukrainians, you know, boat here. I, I love it, and you know, I love the fact that they're pushing back against Russia. I think, with my background, and I'm going to go back to being a Wahoo. I was, I was served in Eastern Europe. I, I was, you know, if people talk about Russian and Romanian intelligence. I can't tell you exactly what I did, but I definitely came in contact with them in, in very, you know, very surprising ways. Um, let me tell. If, if one day, if I sat down with a bird with everybody on my stories about. 
Russian and Romanian intelligence approaching me when I was over there during Operation Allied Force, I think your eyes would bug out. I know how they act, have a great education, I have the operational experience. And when you're looking at Putin, he is an enemy to the United States, as is Russia specifically. There's no two ways around it. Um, and I think what I would tell people is study the Communist International, the Comintern. Um, if you go back and you want to look at Russian history, the Communist Forum, um, look how they did business. And look how they would say one thing and do another to destabilize countries. Uh, it's still in their past performance is indicative of future performance. It's still how they do things. And it should be everything in our power, the United States power, to make sure that Ukraine doesn't fall to Russia. Is Denver Riggleman going to run for governor of Virginia? Maybe one day. I mean, you know, it's probably not going to be 2025, but I'm not, I don't want to make news because everybody always says, well, I don't know. Even if they are, they come up with some BS excuse. I want to run for governor. Um, I think I'd be a good one. I just don't know if I want to run, you know, in a party. I just don't want to. I, there is no way I want to run as a Republican or Democrat. Somebody would have to really talk me into that. Um, I just don't know if I fit in any of those spaces anymore where I'm going to go to committee meetings and say what people want to hear. I just don't even have that in me anymore. It's gone. I never did it before I was 47 years old, and I don't want to do it now after Congress. I got fired from the worst job I ever had in Congress, let me tell you. And so, um, But if I were to do something, I do want to run for governor. I just don't know if I got to have the fire to do it. Uh, I need to know that my family's okay and they're good with it. I need to know that I even have a chance. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you would have to actually take into consideration. And I will tell you right now, part of it is I would be very worried about um, how much energy I could put into that if I'm not 100% committed. I just, I don't want to do that to, to the people of Virginia because I'm Virginia born and bred. And I would be, and I would run for governor not to run for something else like a lot of people do, right? I, I just love my, I love my state, even though it overtaxes and overregulates me. I love my state. I love my Commonwealth. Um, so uh, that's the, that's the issue I have is that it's not fair to people if I'm not all in, and right now I'm not all in. I think you'd make a hell of. A, I, I can't be any more honest. I think you make a hell of a governor. I think the, the Commonwealth would be lucky to have you. Um, I think in 2023 and 2025. If you choose to do this, the opportunity for an independent or a candidate associated with a third party, whatever that held the third party's called, maybe it's the party of common sense. Maybe that's how we brand it now. Because the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans aren't the JFK Democrats and Republicans or the Ronald Reagan Democrats and Republicans anymore. They become caricatures of their former selves. So a third party, whatever we call it, I think there's never been a better chance for a candidate to get into the governor's mansion than right now. I, I have too much respect for you to push back on that. I got some questions from some viewers and listeners, and then we'll wrap up. Um, yeah, I got about I got about 16 minutes. I got to head to D.C., man, okay, this, for more meetings. This one more is meetings. from John Blair and Stanton, and it's a very good hey. one. It's a very good one. Given Congressman Riggleman's experience with data and its manipulation, what is Congressman Riggleman's opinion about juveniles using social media? A lot of experts and people claim that social media is the new smoking. Does, Gover does uh, Denver Riggleman believe the government should regulate juvenile use of social media? No, it's up to the parents. I like that. Um, your <laughs> I said... Is that blunt enough? <laughs> no, no. And, and, I'll, and I'll throw this here, and I, I know you're on limited time here. McCulloch showed the Commonwealth when he made those comments on the campaign trail that parents did not have a right to get involved with the public school education with their children. Virginians voted because of those moronic statements for Glenn Youngkin. If McCulloch, I actually believe that lost him the election. If, if McCulloch had to have said that once, twice, and three times, he would be in the mansion right now, and Yunkin would be in private equity or running the hedge fund, whatever the hell he was doing, okay? But because he once, twice, and tripled down, Yunkin is in the mansion right now. I am a guy that believes the parents have the right or the duty to be involved with their kids. That's right. Um, we... You know, when you're talking about electronic media and the dangers that I talk about it, I think it's an education for parents. I think they're, I think schools should teach the dangers of social media and sourcing what all the dangers are. And I see a lot of parents already taking those steps to shield their kids. I mean, for me, I would, I would hope that people wait till their kids are teenagers between 14 and 16. This is an opinion, but I'm not going to regulate what a parent thinks is best for their kid on social media or with their phones or devices. I'm just, I, that's just, I don't have time for that. I'm not going to do it. Final question for you. You're tight on time. 
How do you characterize? I got 14 minutes. I got 14 minutes, Jerry, okay. if you want me here at 30, but if I, not, that's okay. I want the 14 minutes. Yes, okay. sir, absolutely. Um, how would you characterize the state, let's call it the proverbial state of the union of the Commonwealth of Virginia right now? Well, I think um, I'm not going to talk about my business line specifically, or that's a bitter, bitter conversation. But when you're talking about the economy, when you're talking about the way things are going on in Virginia, I mean, we're always going to be bl- we're always going to be blessed uh, because we have so much money running in from the federal government into contracting. I think when I was in, what is it, sixty billion a year is pumping into the Virginia economy. I think as a governor, your job is not to screw that up, <laughs> right? And I also think it's about it's about it is about tech. And I think when you're looking at broadband, I think you're looking at the 1.5 billion that's coming to this commonwealth. I was very proud. I think in just the fifth district, um, I think I tens of millions of dollars I was able to bring just with my relationship uh, with the United States Department of Agriculture and how hard I worked the growth of tech. I think right now Virginia is so well positioned because they already have that background in, in, in defense contracting, but we also have this massive agricultural potential that we still have out there. And I always wanted to get hemp and marijuana rolling real heavy to replace the tobacco you know, that was lost for a lot of people in the southern part of the state. People knew I was in love with Southern Virginia, and you know that too, right? I'm, I, and uh, I love the people, and I love the place. I think they didn't really like me after the wedding, but they still know I'm going to tell them the truth, and if their car breaks down, I'm going to help them change their tire. So um, I just think we're in an amazingly good position, and I think as a governor, people just don't have to screw it up. Or if you're a legislator, if you're in the House of Delegates or in the State Senate, you know, try to make sure that we can grow private business and small business right, with all the money that's being pumped into the economy by the federal government every year. Why has been, why has marijuana and cannabis legalization taken so long? I think there's still a stigma to it. I still think there are issues, you know, with usage and the workplace. And I think sometimes people translate that over to there's some kind of huge issue, right, either with addiction or something like that, which there really isn't. But even I, you know, in our workplace, we don't want people smoking marijuana. Well, you're actually making liquor with fire and stuff, you know, with boilers. And so we probably don't want marijuana around it. But, you know, even we don't want that. But I think a lot of people still, there's a stigma to it. I think you're going to have lobbyists from both sides. I think you have a lot more money on the side of anti-marijuana than pro-marijuana right now. So really, it's a war against the lobbyists. I don't think it's really about marijuana, you know, being so dangerous that it has to be outlawed. And if you think about my perspective, to be blunt, I make liquor, man. I mean... I, I make liquor. I, I somebody called me like the sin congressman. I was running as a Republican. <laughs> I'm like, what? You know? <laughs> so, you know, so I mean, there you go, man. I mean, uh, are you kidding me? So I, uh, yeah, I think again, there's always a line. Now I know people's like, well, what about heroin? No, no not heroin. I, it's like it's just so amazing to me that people are like, well, let's cross the common sense line because. You're saying we should legalize marijuana. We should legalize all drugs. You know what? Just get off my porch. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have time for this conversation. You know, I'm a Second Amendment guy, but we shouldn't have fully automatic weapons. Just get off my porch. I, I, I just don't have time, you know, and I think that's, again, why I have to have my energy to run for office again, Jerry, as you can see, because I'm not going to be in a, in a committee meeting saying, just get off my porch, man. I'm just not in the mood for this right now. Just please leave. I just, dear Lord. I've had enough. Just please use your common sense at some point. Put in, uh, put in perspective for the viewers and listeners taxation as it comes to running uh, a small business and trying to grow a small business and how that taxation exposure can throttle growth if not managed correctly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, running a small business in Virginia, you know, a lot of people say it's great for it unless you're actually manufacturing, right? Or you're in a business where lobbyists control it. If you think I'm in a constant war against beer and wine lobbyists in the restaurant lobby because they want to make sure that we're not competitive. There is not another state that charges 34% per bottle out of our own distillery, an actual distribution fee that we have to pay the mafia, right? It's just a play that mafia is ABC to us. And, um, you know, that's why we expanded more in Pennsylvania and we're looking to expand into Kentucky and Louisiana. Virginia is just not viable when it comes to actually wanting to grow here in a manufacturing sense in the distillery business specifically. I also think, you know, some of the rules that are so arbitrary are really lobbyist-based or they're lobbyist-run. And we've seen that, my wife and I, since 2014. And it's been really disturbing to us um, to try to explain to people this because if it's not happening to you, you automatically sort of dismiss it. 
And once once I started going to war in the small business space, I wanted to help everybody. So instead of me just worrying about distilleries, that's why I ran for Congress. That's why I did my 10-week run for governor, which was like me jumping off a two-story building every day and landing hard and hoping I would just break into pieces. That's what it felt like, right? Um, but yeah, the ta- you know our, our actual tax is a profit transfer fee. I can't even write it off. Last year was $300,000 that I had to pay extortion fees to the government, not counting federal excise tax, not counting my federal taxes, not counting business personal property tax, not counting insurance, not counting all the fees, not counting operation costs. And people who are in business listening to me, they're probably like, well, Denver, why don't you just stick a pencil in your eyeball? Because it would be a lot better than actually going through all those taxation and regulatory fee structures. But again, we make great bourbon, brother. We make great whiskey. I get 30 gallons a minute off our property. We have the perfect place to store bourbon. So we're trying to fight. We're trying to stay here. But our expansion is in other states because of the actual regulatory overreach of the ABC and the, and the government of Virginia, to be honest. The, uh, the opportunity in Pennsylvania versus the opportunity in Virginia, compare it with a number standpoint. Okay. So how about this? On a million dollars? Uh, in straight sales, our profit transfer would be $340,000 to Virginia. Our profit transfer on a million dollars in Pennsylvania is 60000 Jesus. That's amazing. There you go. How about that for quick That's, math? So you're talking, you're talking 6x the exposure, basically. 6x the exposure in Virginia. Also in Virginia, you know, with the baseline three-phase fees that we have to pay in this regulated area, our electricity is more... Um, really, our supply chain is much tougher in Virginia than it is in Pennsylvania. We have more access to grains in Pennsylvania uh, because they're trying to grow their distillery markets and, and craft brewery markets more aggressively. It's just like Kentucky, right? Um, Kentucky's expansion areas for us, the taxes are so low, or in Tennessee and things like that, that it's really difficult for us not to think about moving more of our operations out of the Commonwealth. Yeah, I, and, and who could blame you for doing that? A um, couple more minutes uh, here with Deb. Uh, with Denver Riggleman, what do you think Yunkin's angling for? Glenn Yunkin, the governor. Oh, I think president. I don't. I think somebody who is a successful CEO who has that kind of you know financial stability, um, almost superior financial stability, and somebody who ran for governor of Virginia actually had president sights from the beginning. I mean, that's. I'm just not saying it in a bad or good way, Jerry. I'm just telling you that's where he wants to be. I I agree. I agree. Um, I've said that many times on this program, Judah. I 100% agree with him. All right, we'll close on this. Last question for you. Uh, It's a macro question. How do you characterize the state of our country right now? Um, It's a hot mess. (laughs) Amen, brother. (laughs) Seriously. That's my scientific evaluation. Um, It's a hot mess. I mean, you're talking about I mean, destabilizing activities everywhere and you, and people talking past each other, right? Nobody should, you know, I, I'm just watching people even, you know, in a, uh, I would say in an example way, you know, quoting people like Hitler or saying Stalin's great, you know, on the other side, not looking at any type of the, you know, sort of some of the fundamental values we have as Americans that people just sort of want to throw under the bus too on the far left. And I'm watching the far right and the far left and I'm watching people starting to scream at each other. Um, and by the way, what I want to tell people, Jerry, is this. If you see somebody screaming unequivocally on something where they're not looking at the other side at all, it means they're making money. That's right. So you're looking at a brand new conspiratorial grift economy. And I think <laughs> so. And I think that grift economy is really starting to take over. And I just don't know if the two party system survives alternative and social media at this pace. I think it's just very difficult. Um, I just don't know if a two-party tribal system can withstand the multiple ways that electrons can be zapped straight into people's brains right now. It's almost like they're freebasing crazy in some respects. Um, And like I said before, to bring it full circle, crazy has a lot more energy than sanity. Um, And the sane has to get some more caffeine. Uh, We're going to have to drink more coffee. Uh, We're going to have to do more sourcing. Because it's a lot harder to prove a lie than to monetize a lie or to weaponize a lie. And that fight just makes it that much harder. Not only do they have more energy, they have less they have to prove. And for me, that's a scary thing. And I think that's where we're at as a country right now. I'm really worried about the spring of 2024 and violence going forth through the end of the election based on what we're seeing. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's where we're at. I think my scientific evaluation is we're a hot mess. 
You, uh, you are an interviewer's uh, dream. You're a breath of fresh air. I look forward to doing this again. I wish you uh, safe travels to D.C. Um, I wish you success with your business. We're fortunate to have you in Nelson County in the Commonwealth. I understand why you open operations in Pennsylvania. And thank you for your straightforwardness. And thank you for your, uh, I mean, just being a, a dude that I'd want to pull up next to, uh, at a bar and have a bourbon with. <laughs> Seriously. I tell you, man, that's all I want to be, man. People yeah. need to know, Jerry, just like you, 10, because we have just freaking be good to people, you know, and, you know, and and if you're going to attack somebody, do it with facts and don't do it in an anonymous Twitter handle, right, <sighs> or an email you make up, right, to put something out there because it just shows what a coward and a belly crawling mouth breather that you are. And I think that's what I would want to tell people is be kind Don't be a mouth breather. Well said. Thank you kindly for joining us. Thanks, buddy. Have a great day. Take care. See you, bud. All right. Take care. Denver Riggleman, guys. Crushed it. Absolutely crushed it right there on the I Love Seville show. And, and, you know, I think we can speak firsthand about anonymous accounts and meme accounts um, hiding behind fake names and keyboard muscles. No one knows that more firsthand in Central Virginia than yours truly. Um, first, Denver Riggleman, thank you kindly for joining us. We'll see if we can reach out to him in the future and um, have him on the program yet again. I think he is a breath of fresh air. Um, a lot to unpack from that show and that interview. And first, I want to thank him for coming on the program. Um, I also am nervous about this presidential race with Trump clearly gaining traction and how that's going to impact our country from a violent standpoint. I've said that on this talk show. Um, I think right now Trump's opponents um, can't see the forest through the trees and they don't realize they're dealing with a master brander, a master marketer, and someone who has a massive following behind them. And that scares the absolute bejeebus out of me. As someone who makes his living on social media, digital marketing, on smartphones, within Meta, within Instagram, within Threads, within YouTube. I clearly understand the endorphins that folks get from interacting on social media. It's drugs, people. This is drugs, social media. The endorphins and the high you get from someone interacting with your post, it's the reason why we pick our phone up 18 30, 40 times a day and just scroll news feeds aimlessly. It is drugs, people. I think Glenn Youngkin is undoubtedly making a push for the presidency. When is to be determined? I don't think it's the next election cycle, but don't be surprised if it's the following one. The 6X tax exposure that Silverback has in the Commonwealth versus Pennsylvania was a startling number for me. 6x the tax exposure in the Commonwealth of Virginia versus Pennsylvania. You see why he's got a Pennsylvania operation humming, undoubtedly. I've said on this program so many times, I don't care what you smoke, who you marry, I don't care the God you believe in, what you do in your bedroom, what you watch on the screen, as long as what you're watching on the screen is consenting adults above the age of 18, okay? I believe in a woman's choice to do what she wants with her body. I'm a small government guy a small government guy that believes the government should be in the background and not front and center, okay? One of the reasons we went so hard at, for example, Segura Home over the last week is because we saw overreach, we saw under, uh, we saw over-promising and under-delivering, and we saw taking advantage of customers. So we used our influence and platform to stand up for the little guy. I think Riggleman does a lot of that. I think Riggleman does a lot of that. And I understand that for those that on, they're on, on the right right now, those that lean conservative or Republican, you may have some issue with him working with the Hunter Biden team and his attorneys. And I get the optics of it. But when it's all said and done, the man is running a business. He's running a data business. And a data business is tied to the free market. It's called capitalism. And we have choices to make. As free market guys, 
as CEOs and as small business owners. Hell of a choice would be if Segura Holmes says, Jerry, we see the influence you have. It's paramount, it's significant, it's robust, it's far-reaching. We have a crisis management problem, a branding problem. Would you work with us? And then I, as a CEO, have a choice whether to work with that account, that company, or not. Just like he had a choice of whether working with Biden's attorneys or not. It's the free market. I'm going to weave Judah Wickhauer in on a two-shot. we got a 145 TV commercial shoot. It's actually 2 o'clock, so we need to be getting out of the door fairly soon. I'll get to some comments. Put the comments in the feed. Your thoughts on that interview, J-Dubs. Uh, you know, I love hearing from uh, Denver Riggleman. I think, uh, <clears throat> I think it's refreshing, uh, his take on things, uh, his, uh, his ability to talk. Uh, you know, he, he talks about the far left and the far right, and, and I think that's what uh, so often where we see the problems coming from, uh, you know, people unwilling to, uh, people unwilling to talk about, you know, Talk about laws, things, whatever, whatever's going on. There's this, you know, kind of uh, this kind of uh, circling around of the wagons of every single topic, where you're either uh, you're either right or left, and nobody's talking about uh, solutions anymore. It seems like to me, and so it's refreshing to hear someone like uh, like Mr. Riggleman. Uh, talk about uh, you know just seeing things from uh, from his own perspective, and not uh, you know not uh, towing some party line. The Ronald Reagan and JFK, John F. Kennedy Jr. Republicans and Democrats are gone. Those that are catered to the center of the aisle that want to be neutral and bridge the gap are gone. And I hate to say it, we make our living using it. It's because of social media. It's created a line in the proverbial sand, and social media says you're either on this side of it or the other side of it. So many people, for example, Charlottesville Twitter, thought the silo of content that they were absorbing and engaging with on Charlottesville Twitter was indicative of real life. The reality, Charlottesville Twitter was back in Kellen Squire, and he lost 7 out of 10 votes to Amy Lawfer. Because people remember the first lie over the second truth. Charlottesville Twitter backing Sally Hudson. Creed Eads beat Sally Hudson. Charlottesville Twitter backing Dave Norris. Katrina Coulson beat Dave Norris. That's a microcosm here locally of how the silo of content you interact with on social media is not truly indicative of real life. It is just that, a silo of content positioned in front of you by an algorithm because it knows the algorithm you will engage and interact with said content. Once we realize that the social platforms are in the business of what? Making money for themselves, then we will realize that this algorithm, its focus is manipulation to drive daily active users and to get you to engage with as much as humanly possible. Now, I'm not here to throw complete shade on social media because if it's used for the good like we do, it can become a network of news for so many, especially as legacy media, print, radio, and television fails to reinvent itself. I talk about the daily progress all the time. You got a newspaper that's not getting delivered on time because of a partnership with the United States Postal Service, a entity that is incredibly understaffed and overworked. Of course the newspaper's not going to get on time. The paywall's 50 bucks on the website. How many people are actually engaging with the news from the paper of record at a 300,000 person market? I would bet it's two to 3,000 people maybe. Who's filled in that gap? This network has filled in the gap. And as we continue to adapt because we're nimble, because we have a leader in yours truly that stays on the cutting edge of innovation when it comes to technology and the ubiquitous and approachable nature of technology and smartphones and social media, we will continue to beat and win the game. We will win and beat the game and we do it for profit, but we do it in a way that is filling in a gap that's called social entrepreneurship or conscious capitalism. 
Ladies and gentlemen, as a parent of two young boys, a five-year-old and a nearly eight-month-old, and an eight-month-old who is now, my wife and I thank the Lord for this, who has now slept through the night on a 10-day stretch. 10 straight days now, Judah, our youngest, has slept through the night. And we pray and thank God for that. Because it went seven months without it. Seven plus months. As someone who's a father of two young boys, the next generation of Charlottesvillians, of Keswickians, of Almaro Countyans, of Central Virginians, of Virginians, of Americans, as a father, as a husband, I have never been more trepid or concerned or apprehensive. And that's coming from a man who sees glasses and cups that are half full and not half empty. And you have to have that mindset as a serial entrepreneur because 80% of small businesses fail in their first three years. I'm concerned. I'm concerned. But that concern will not create paralysis of analysis and that concern will certainly not create a lack of action. I roll my sleeves up and I proclaim it's not the size of the dog that matters. It's the size of the fight in the dog that matters. For Denver Riggleman and Judah Wickhauer, my name is Jerry Miller.